Hello and welcome back to The Longest Battle podcast. I'm very pleased to say that David Butler is here today doing The Longest Battle podcast. David is a true legend. As a child, he found an unexploded bomb and lost both legs and a hand. Now in his 70s, David is an inspiration. He has revolutionised motorsport for disabled people. I can't wait to hear his story. Hello, David. Thanks so much for coming along to the Longest Battle podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, So, basically, just tell me what actually happened to you a long time ago. What happened? Um, When I was 11 years old, my parents took me on a picnic um, in 1955 um, to Ivanhoe Beacon, uh, which was a National Trust uh, ground. Um, And... I was I could really run in those days and I ran up to the top of the beacon and I looked down into fields nearby and on a gatepost I saw what I thought was a very large rusty tin can hmm. so I rushed down to it um, a friend of mine was behind me I got there first picked it off the fence but it was so heavy I dropped it and the explosion was heard 7 miles away it was an old mortar bomb Because in the war, Ivanhoe Beacon was a a training ground um, for soldiers to use mortars. And, of course, in the emergency of a war, um, they don't worry whether they've gone off or not. They just want to train the soldiers and get them on the front line. Hmm. So uh, a lot of these um, munitions were left. um, And although the National Trust, uh, a few years later... Um, after the war had declared uh, the beacon to be clear of munitions it obviously wasn't and many years later I went down to Blackdown Barracks um, for a a conference there and I met a Colonel Green and he came up to me and said David were you injured at Ivanhoe Beacon and I said yes he said said, I was um, in charge um, of checking for other uh, unexploded bombs on oh the beacon goodness. and I closed the beacon for five months and I found 57 more unexploded um, munitions oh my goodness so oh. I, I did I did quite a good job of clearing the beacon for everyone <laughs> wow that's but I scary. lost my uh, I lost my left leg below the knee my right leg was some yards away it was blown off uh, above the knee and I lost my left hand um, which was a bit of a problem because I was left-handed. Uh, <laughs> that's my excuse for having terrible handwriting ever since <laughs> when I learned to write with my right hand. Oh, goodness me, goodness me. Um, so, I, obviously, I've been in hospital for quite a long time. So, so tell me how long can you remember about... Cause how old were you at the time? I was 11. 11. At, at, at the time. Um, and the nearest hospital to the Beacon, which had intensive care facilities, um, was at Luton and Dunstable. Mm. And so that was where I was taken. The bomb actually didn't knock me out. Oh, right. I, I could I got zinging in my ears because my eardrums had been blown out um, mm. with the blast. Um, and I can remember my, my, my dad kneeling near me um, and talking to me. Mm. Um, but actually, I, I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for a doctor, Dr Pinkerton, and his wife, who was a nurse, who were picnicking on the beacon. Oh, 
And both had had experience of uh, explosions in the war, uh, and they heard it go off, knew exactly what it was, and got to me immediately. Otherwise, I say I wouldn't be talking to you. But it didn't knock me out at that point. I I could hear the the zinging in my ears, and I could hear my dad talking to me. but then after that, um, you know, I didn't come round for about another three or four weeks for in, in intensive care. And I had the most wonderful Sister Beryl Ash look after me during the whole of that period of time. Yeah. How, then, long, how long were you actually in hospital for? In total, uh, over two years. Two years? Yes. My goodness. Uh, wow. I started off um, in Luton and Dunstable where they completed the amputations. Um, and I was there for five or six months. And then I had to move uh, to Mount Vernon uh, mm. for skin grafting. Okay. Um, because um, in the early days, I had um, contracted gangrene twice in my left leg, right. which is where my knee was, which was vital to, to save that knee. Yeah. Um, and uh, this, the, 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 the skin um, was not sufficient over the stump for me to put my weight on it when I eventually would get my artificial limbs. Mm. <clears throat> so I was taken to Mount Vernon and I had 16 operations in 17 months, mainly to move a huge amount of skin from the right side of my chest yeah. uh, in a pedicle, which is like a, a tube. It almost looked like a handle okay. on, on the side of me. Uh, I didn't um, uh, appreciate a comment by a surgeon that he could put a spout the other side and they can pour me. <laughs> oh, we don't want that. <laughs> it, took a, it took a long time to transfer from my side uh, via my arm then to my leg and then wrap it round um, uh, so that I had a, a thick layer of skin um, that I could stand on but I did realise how vital it was mm. for me to have one knee yeah. for walking swimming everything else it yeah. was vital yeah so tell me um, what's been the most challenging obstacle that you've been faced since since the accident um, I, I didn't r- really think about obstacles. Um, mm. I, I knew that I wouldn't be able um, to do all the things that I had as a youngster, playing football, running around. Mm. And I think you come to a, um, a, a, a realisation very early on that there are limitations, but then there are other uh, advantages uh, that you, you, can, you can gain from a, a disability. Um, I think probably the biggest um, challenge was actually getting around um, and I was frustrated as a teenager as well um, mm. and when I went back to school of having to be responsible um, uh, or reliant upon other people to give me lifts um, yeah. um, from friends or have taxis or whatever and I found that enormously frustrating and until eventually I was able to drive. Mm. So how were how were your teenage years? Um, well, when I was injured uh, on a Sunday, on, on the Monday morning, my eleven plus positive results dropped through the letterbox while I was in intensive care, and the headmaster John Robinson, um, a, 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 a wonderfully supportive headmaster at Hemel Hempstead Grammar School, held that place open for me for another, for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until his 80th birthday party that I found out actually he had a metal plate in his back and was injured in the war himself. Oh, right. Enormously supportive. Mm. Um, and I, I enjoyed my, my 
teenage years in in the um, uh, in the Hemel Grammar School, um, and it was there actually that um, I, I met my future wife. Fantastic. When I was waiting for a taxi at, at the school. Uh-huh. Oh, fantastic. Um, so how did you get into motorsports? Um, when I was in Luton and Dunstable Hospital in intensive care, alongside me in an iron lung was a young scout, and he had climbed over the barrier at Whipsonade Zoo into the lion's den, and the lion had captured him and ripped both his arms off at the shoulder and he was in in an iron lung next to me and a a Daily Express reporter called Frank Goldsworthy came along to write the story about the scout Mm. and while he was there Frank was originally the war correspondent for the Daily Express so Sister Beryl Ash mentioned that I had bomb injuries and he was very very interested and came to see me and chatted to me and in his autobiography there is um, uh, a whole chapter that's called um, uh, when he referred to me as uh, gaining a best friend for life Amazing. wonderful guy yeah and what a story <laughs> oh my goodness and then wow. he then he took um, he came to visit me quite regularly and just when I'd finished all my operations in Mount Vernon Hospital and I was about to be transferred to Roehampton to get fitted with legs. Mm. Frank came along, and I used to call him Uncle Frank by then. Um, uh, he came along with a wheelchair, popped me in it, and took me to Silverstone. Uh-huh. Because the Daily Express ran a Formula One meeting there. And, oh, a 13-year-old going to, uh, to, to, to Silverstone was quite something. And I, because Frank, of course, had a press pass, we went on, we went on the grid... Um, I met Sterling Moss, Mike Hawthorne, wow. and they sat me in a in a in a Formula One car. And I'm so exciting, uh, and that day really started a, a lifelong love affair with motor racing. And I saw that day also, who was really the first successful disabled driver, a guy called Archie Scott Brown. Okay. And Archie was born with deformity of both legs and, and an arm, uh, but he was determined to race. And he, after many, many operations, he, he was driving, he started to race, and he was um, renowned for his skillful control of big Lister Jaguars. And I saw him that day drift this V8 Lister through Woodcote Corner, and it was so exciting. And I thought, wonderful, that, that's, that really is something I want to do. Um, and I made that an objective... Um, and I n- never wavered from it. Uh, you know, I was going to race. Life objective, basically. It was, yes. But it, what I didn't know was it was going to take me a, another 30 years before I could get a full race licence. One of the reasons for that um, was, regrettably and very sadly, two years after I saw Archie at Silverstone, he died at Spa in a race. Um, it was a wet race, and he went, s- and it's a road circuit, and he went slightly offline while racing with his great friend Maston Gregory in another Lister Jag. And he somersaulted the car and burnt to death in it. The anti-disability brigade, who were very vocal and numerous at the time, stated that it was his disability that caused the accident. Quite wrongly, mm. because he, his, his, his driving uh, was, was Im- impeccable. But they changed the rules then and brought in really draconian rules 
um, which stayed in place and, and virtually excluded disabled drivers from motor racing for, th- for the next 30 years until I changed those rules and challenged them. Fantastic. And you, you changed that. That's amazing. Yes. That's, yes. Been, that's amazing. So racing is still pretty dangerous. Well, that's the, that's, that's the excitement. If it wasn't dangerous, we wouldn't bother doing it, would we? <laughs> it, it gets the adrenaline going to, to, to race. Um, and, and really, that, that's, that, that is driving on the limit. And if you go over the limit, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, then, oh, yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I found rally driving, actually, because I did two world championship rallies and some international historic rallies. Um, but I, I, I found that that was very dangerous and also very expensive. Yeah, I wrote yeah. my Porsche, my historic Porsche 911 off by hitting a wall and then a tree at 70. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, my ex enjoyed rally driving. Yeah. It's pretty scary. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, when we did the um, the the UK uh, round of the World Championship, um, I had twelve people in my crew. Yeah. We had a, a, a van full of spares. My my wife and and my younger daughter uh, running the cafe car, feeding us all, and then a chase <laughs> car behind me. And of oh. course, you know, by the time you've gone all around the country, yeah, hotels and everything else, it's a very very expensive game. Yeah. So definitely. after I wrote the the Porsche off, I thought I'd go back to motor racing. Um, where uh, we're all going the same way, um, the trees and the banks are a bit further back, uh, and it's the same every lap. So I thought that was a bit more safe. Fantastic. Have you had any near misses then? Any ones where you suddenly thought, "Oh my goodness, that was pretty scary uh, as a racing driver." Uh, well, h- hitting the tree was 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 quite scary, and I actually on one one rally we managed to go through a hedge and into a river. Um, so that, that was uh, yeah. <laughs> that was quite scary as well. So, what would you say has been your biggest achievement? It's not on the track, um, uh, although I, I, I I've won many classes. I got driver of the day. I've held two lap records, but I, I ignore those really because I think my greatest achievement um, was changing the rules. Um, for motor racing to enable disabled drivers to take part. And that took me from when I was 17 to when I was 47, exactly 30 years to change those rules that have been put in place after Archie's uh, demise on the track. I could do um, any motorsport event where there was only one car at a time on the circuit. In other words, I, I could do rallies, sprints, hill climbs, those sort of high-speed events, mm. uh, sometimes on, on on circuits as well, but not a mass grid start, and that's really what I wanted to do. And I did over 500 of these events. Wow. I went to the MSA, the Motorsport Association, who are the governing body in the UK, to request my licence, and it got t- t- turned down 13, 14 times. Got, it got turned down 14 times, um, you could call that persistence, I suppose, or yeah. stubbornness. <laughs> but I, I was determined that I, I was going to race. Yeah. But after all these events, um, and I'd, I'd won a lot of events, I, I won my class in the London Autocross Championship racing on grass. Um, but they ignored all this and said, no, you, you've got arms and legs missing, you can't do motor, motor racing you know, with a mass grid start with other drivers. But I wouldn't accept that. 
Um, and so I joined the British Motorsport Association for the Disabled, BMSAD, of which I've now been the, I've been the chairman for over 20 years now. I'm, I'm now president of it. But then I took the MSA to the European courts under the Treaty of Rome um, for discrimination because they, they, in none of their assessments um, was the ability of the disabled driver to race taken into account. Therefore, it was clear discrimination. Mm. And when they appointed a QC, um, it took him very little time to tell them David will win. So talk to him about it. And they did so, and I set up the very first um, uh, assessment centre uh, to assess disabled drivers' ability at, at Silverstone. And there were three of us who did the first uh, test. Um, and between us, uh, we had five limbs, and one guy had an eye missing as well. There was only three of us. And we, we, we all got our licences. I, I raced against the uh, Formula 5000 champion alongside me in my, in, my, in my little sports racing car. Yeah. And it was slightly damp, and he was pushing me onto the um, damp parts of the circuit to make certain <laughs> I could control the car. But I received my my license then uh, and, and, and went on very shortly afterwards to do 24 races in that year. Fantastic. But when I was setting up the assessment, um, one of the criteria, and it always has to be the number one criteria in motorsport, and that's safety. Mm. And yeah. it isn't just the safety of the driver. I say to disabled drivers when they come to me um, to discuss taking part, that it isn't just their safety. If they're daft enough to put a helmet on and get into a car, that's fine. Mm. I do have a responsibility to make certain they can get out of it in time and it's as safe as possible with the controls and adaptations they need. But there are other, in, there are other factors. And my main concern, uh, it might be other drivers who'd stop to help them get out of the car. Yeah. But the main concern is, is the marshals. Uh, we have the finest marshals in the world in the UK. And they'll put their life on the line to get you out of a car in an incident. And therefore, th there is a set time, exactly the same as an able-bodied person, to be able to get out of that car in seven seconds, from being strapped in to being out outside the car. If they're disabled, it doesn't matter if they, if they drop themselves on the ground alongside the car, the marshal can then grab them and get them away. Yeah. And it doesn't put that marshal at risk. So having set up that assessment, agreed with the insurance company, all the safety criteria, we then had a procedure for other disabled drivers. Um, and I've done assessments of more than 300 uh, over the last 27, uh, 26 years that I've been doing that for the MSA. Wow. Done a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, quite a busy boy. <laughs> Definitely. What do you think your secret has been to motivate you? Um, I, th I think I'm very disciplined. Um, I, uh, and when I set myself a goal, um, I mean to make that goal um, regardless of the uh, difficulties or barriers that are put up in front of me. Um, and I think that's necessary for someone with any sort of disability. Mm. Um, when I talk to soldiers who, who've been injured, particularly in Afghanistan, where they've stepped on IEDs, the improvised explosive devices, those guys, I always sit and chat to them about what's important. 
And there's two things really, um, and they understand the discipline because they've been in the in the forces. But it's really to keep yourself fit. Mm-hmm. Um, as I, I I swim probably two miles a week, yeah. um, and I take the, my lovely Labradors for a walk every night. But also, it's necessary to keep your weight absolutely level. Um, my wife hates me saying this, bless her heart. <laughs> uh, but I'm exactly the same weight I was when I was 21. I'm I now won. 73. Yeah. Because it, it's essential. You can't have you can't put them weight on with your artificial limbs. It, you'll sink into the sockets, which is damn painful, mm-hmm. um, and you won't be able to walk. So uh, you know you you must be disciplined in those two areas, fitness and weight. And to be stubborn. Stubborn, yeah, definitely. Took me 30 years to get my race license, so I think you call that stubborn or persistent anyway. Persistence, isn't it? That's what it is. It's like trying to push forward all the time. And don't let other people tell you what you can't do. Mm, Okay. Because some of the soldiers, they would say to me, oh, so-and-so said I can't do this or I can't do that. I said, how disabled are they? They said, oh, they're not. Then how do they know? You set your yeah. objectives, you set your what motivates you, and you go and do it. You're Don't gonna take get... any notice of anybody else. Yeah, you're going to get me back driving, David. That's I'll, what's well, going to happen. So. Of course. <laughs> Some point soon it will happen. <laughs> it's my new aim now. Absolutely. That's what's going to be happening. Do you suffer with anxiety from the bomb at all now? No, I never have. No. I think... If there is um, an age to have such a, a, a major injury, mm. um, probably 11 is it. Because I, I didn't have... All I was thinking about, could I kick a football again? Yeah. Um, these young soldiers who I see, mm. um, they have enormous anxiety and stress because how are they going to uh, secure a job? How they're going to support a family? Yeah. Um, so they, they, you know, they have a very different uh, approach. Um, I, I went uh, to uh, visit some of the victims of the Guildford bombing, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them, um, uh, Paul, was a triple amputee, similar to myself. Yeah. He was only eighteen. Mm. He'd only been married a year, had a little son, um, and of course, uh, w- when you go to see these folks very shortly after their injury as your your eardrums are blown out by the blast so I was really having to shout I, I, incidentally I, I had a very uh, amusing um, invitation Paul's doctor rang me and said David um, Prince Charles came to see Paul yesterday, would you mind coming in soon and cheering him up well I'm sure he didn't mean that but I did have to <laughs> chuckle but I was chatting to Paul and of course I'm having to shout to him um, and I really wasn't getting through. He's very depressed, bless him. Uh, and I thought, hang on, David, he's only 18. He's only been married shortly. And I says to him, um, Paul, there's um, there's no problem with sex. And he went, oh. And I thought, oh, that's a problem. I said, oh, take your legs off. You can get in all sorts of different positions, back of a mini. Of course, he was roaring with laughter. you got to laugh, haven't you? <laughs> and as, as I was leaving, the uh, big SAS guy who was, who was guarding these folks pulled the curtains back and as I walked past him he said uh, David there's a young nurse over there wants your telephone number <laughs> <laughs> so you've had some some amazing highlights in your career tell me about some things that that are very memorable for you 
for example, um, the torch, the Olympic torch. Um, tell me, tell me about that. Um, that that was um, a very emotional occasion. The Olympic torch. I thought that um, the torch going round the country as as it did, and and having so many people take part in that was very uh, a very good promotional activity for the Paralympics and the, and the Olympic Games themselves. Um, I was asked to carry the torch in my hometown, Hemel Hempstead, mm -hmm. and I did so right through the centre of the town. And although it was raining that day, um, Andy Murray was on the centre court uh, in the final at Wimbledon. He didn't win that year. The British Grand Prix was on, and 100,000 people turned out to watch. They were 15 deep in places. Wow. Um, all my family, um, my extended family in the in the United States, my elder daughter and my grandson came over. Yeah. And it was a, it was a wonderful occasion. Oh, really, I thought a great build up um mm. to the uh, to the Olympics. Excellent. You you've met the Queen? Yes, I, I was very very proud indeed to gain a, a, a an MBE um for my uh, activities in disability sport. Um, again, a wonderful occasion. Both my daughters and my wife, uh, they look fabulous. Um, we went to uh, Gordon Ramsay's afterwards and the whole place stopped when we walked in. I was so proud. Oh, the, the Queen's such a, a, a... She makes you feel very um, very comfortable when, you, when you're talking to her. But before we actually uh, went to get, gain the, uh, the, 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 the medal... We were in the portrait room where they explained to you the exact process, uh, mm. and you literally um, um, you, you, they lay out exactly where the queen's going to stand and where you're going to stand, and then you walk up and then and they practice it. And at that point, they, they said, then you walk backwards away from Her Majesty. Well, I'd never walked backwards before, yeah. and I was sitting next to. Um, um, I think he was the principal of Westminster School who had a walking stick as well and both of us looked at each other and I said can you walk backwards and he said well, I don't know anyway we had the whole place in fits of laughter because two of us were, were walking backwards up and down this portrait room to make sure we didn't fall over yeah. um, my wife said that when um, when the Queen gave me the MBE um, she watched like a hawk as I walked backwards and she said, I think someone must have told her that you weren't used to doing that. And she was keeping an eye on you. <laughs> a, a wonderful occasion. Yeah, wonderful occasion. Fantastic. Do you still feel that you have some limitations which um, through disability? Do you still find that you have limitations? Of course. Um, if you've lost limbs, then you have to accept that there are things you can't do. Um, you know, I can't run. I can't jump. Um, and uh, as you get older, things become more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you adjust for it. You know, in the house, I've put a passenger lift. I've moved my office downstairs. Yeah. You know, you 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 have to adjust for it. Make changes, basically. You, you do. Yes, and you have to accept that changes are going to be necessary. Yeah. Um, but you know, change is also exciting. It's different. It's, yeah. it, and you look at things as a challenge. Mm. I know we touched about uh, on a, this before, but do you you said about fitness? Mm. Tell me about fitness and what you have to do to keep yourself obviously um, to stay healthy. Well, if you look at the limbs I've got, um, they weigh about two stone, 
so I'm carrying those around the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, I get some exercise simply doing that. But that's not enough. Um, you, you really, if you're going to have a full life, then you need to have as much mobility as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. So and the best exercise I can have is swimming. Um, of course, when I, uh, before I was injured, I couldn't swim. Mm. Um, but afterwards, I, I was told that I should try to swim because it should be much easier. Swimming if, must be quite tricky for you. No, no. if no. you think about it, when you're swimming and you stop swimming, your legs go down. I okay. don't have them, so I float. Yeah. So there's okay. an advantage. Um, but the biggest problem was I, I had a very strong right arm and no feet. So I was an expert at swimming in circles. So I decided that I would make a huge flipper. Um, and I had a cast made so that my um, my stump and my knee actually go into the foot area of the flipper. And then I, I strap it on with a, with, a, with a leather strap. Adaptions, basically, uh, yeah, isn't it? Adapting yeah, yeah. to and what's I can over- happened. I can overtake most people in the pool. <laughs> I bet you're quick. <laughs> really quick. Fantastic. But also, of course, uh, I very much like to keep myself um, with the ability to walk as far as I can. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you, again, you need to exercise regularly. Yeah. So I have two lovely Labradors, mum and daughter, Ebby oh, and Dottie. And every night I take them for about a three-quarter of a mile walk through the woods. Fitness is so important, it's isn't vital. it? That's it's vital. It's vital if, if you have a disability. What's your best bit of advice for someone who has gone through a life-changing situation? Um, I think to um, realistically uh, assess what they continue to be capable of doing. Um, and... By realistic, I mean there are certain things that, that if you have amputations or, or a, a, a paralysis of some sort, mm. you will not be able to continue entirely as you were before. Mm. And therefore it's necessary to make that adjustment. If you don't, you'll, you'll be um, frustrated um, and anxious um, forevermore. Mm-hmm. So if you get over that, that, that hump, as it were, of, of saying, okay... Uh, that was what I did yesterday. This is what I'm capable of doing today. And there are opportunities. I, I, if I hadn't been injured, I would probably never have been into motor racing. I probably would never have done some of the things that you know I, I, I absolutely love doing. You've been so successful doing that. It's well, and fantastic. I've enjoyed it, but yeah. I don't think I, I probably wouldn't have done that otherwise. I found that the challenges as... Uh, that came to me from my disability had a major impact on on my business career mm-hmm. because um, I took the um, the challenges that, that uh, and the challenges that came from my disability into my business life because I uh, again I didn't accept that that things couldn't change and that uh, I would set up. Uh, objectives in business in the same way and the same discipline way mm-hmm. as as I did um, getting over my, my own disability. Disability has been in the headlines recently. Do you think people have changed their ways in how they're reacting to disability nowadays? I, I think the 2012 Paralympics had a major short-term change in attitude 
because it, it showed very positively what disabled people were capable of doing. I feel also the um, very much the publicity around the Premier League and modifying the stadiums um, for disabled people, um, for wheelchair, for ambulant use, um, has also had um, a great deal of publicity. Sadly, I, I'm not sure that the it is a permanent change. I think it's it, it has to be a very gradual change. Um, and when you get um, in, inspiring um, individuals, like young Billy Munger, who lost his legs at Donington uh, and is now back in racing in Formula 3, mm. um, those sort of stories um, make people think um, uh, again about disability uh, and how some people are able to uh, overcome the disability. Mm. However, if you take sort of football matches, uh, often um, disabled people, fans in wheelchairs, yeah. are quite often abused mm. because you know, they seem to be in the way um, yeah. w when the crowds are leaving or whatever. And sometimes people are, are, are not very not not very tolerant, frankly. Mm. Uh, and I sometimes wish I could actually stick somebody in, in a wheelchair and say, "Now you try it." Yeah, I, I find that in places like London Airport, mm. Terminal Three. Recently, I got off an aircraft um, from Madrid, um, and there was um, I, I was I use a wheelchair there because yeah. it's such long distance to walk. Um, and then they transferred me to a buggy. Mm. And then I sat there for 15 minutes waiting for other people. And leave you in there. The, in the buggy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we had to transfer again before we go. And by the time I got to where my, my wife was in the baggage hall, mm. it was probably 30 minutes. Everyone else had gone. Mm. And I thought that was extremely poor service. Yeah. And, and that does happen quite often absolutely now i know my friend who's in, in who's disabled and she really really struggles and in, in london particular and yes. you think that that would be better mm. but it's but not. it's not no, no no i often think um companies that offer services uh, let's take heathrow again mm. uh, i'd really like to get the um the, the ceo of those companies mm. stick him in a wheelchair Put a cast on his legs. So it looks looks the job. Disguise yeah. him so they don't know who it is, and see actually how he feels being treated that way. Yeah, it's terrible. Basically. I don't think they'll do that. It's a great shame. They they get a great deal of kudos if they did it, and they made some ch actual changes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. So tell me, most importantly, that you were actually on This Is Your Life. So tell me about that. That's such a amazing TV show from the. 70s? Yes, the 70s? from the 70s, yes. <clears throat> I, I was um, taking my mock O-levels at Hemohemsey Grammar School and halfway through um, I was interrupted and asked to go to the headmaster's study. Well, I have to say, uh, Emma, um, I, I'd been to the headmaster's study quite a few times and it had never been a pleasant occasion. <laughs> um, but I, I went and um, tapped on the door and I heard a come in. So I did, and I was hit by a bank of lights and television cameras. Oh my goodness! And Eamon wow. Andrews standing there with the um, with with the book saying the immortal words, "David Butler, this is your life." 
Wow. And how old were you at that point? I was point? 17. 17? Yeah. Oh, and my I, goodness. I'm still the youngest subject ever of that programme worldwide. Because at 17, you think, well, what can they do at 17? Yeah. So but who turned up? Ab- who how, turned up as well? Well, how it came about um, was that um, uh, the subject of this particular episode was meant to be Danny Blanchflower, the international um, footballer. But when he was approached by Eamon Andrews, he turned on his heel and walked away. And then the BBC, of course, in panic mode, uh, <laughs> needed to find someone very rapidly where they didn't need to bring people from all around the world. Yeah. Um, and um, Frank Goldsworthy, my Uncle Frank from Daily Express, yeah. uh, he knew Leslie Jackson, the producer, and shot round to the studios because they'd sent out a message to everyone, who, who could we put on here? And yeah. Frank took my, uh, my file round and apparently they had a, a, a list of exactly one and that was me. So that's um, that that that's what happened, and uh, it was put together um, very very quickly indeed. Um, in fact, when I was nine and ten, I boxed mm-hmm. at the Boxmore Boxing Club, um, and I had a, a, a gentle giant of a man called Charlie Collett was my trainer, and he had done the fairgrounds with Freddie Mills, the um, world boxing champion. So f- he called Freddie. And Freddie then actually introduced the, the This Is Your Life programme and ah. explained that he'd come to see me in, uh, uh, in the hospital. And I also had um, my sister, Beryl Ash, uh, who was my ward sister, uh-huh. um, mum and dad. And I had my um, dance instructor, um, <laughs> uh, best mate and mechanic, swimming instructor, um, my future wife, Marilyn. Um, was that ITV? Was it ITV that made uh, it? Uh, uh, no, it was BBC. BBC, at the time. Yes, okay. It was BBC, and unfortunately, they didn't keep videotaping those days. Oh no! But I've got, <laughs> I've got the script, and, I, and, I, and I've got all the, uh, the video. But my my greatest inspiration, of course, was Douglas Bader. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Douglas was on the program. Actually, <laughs> he gave he gave me a medal for trying to. Well, I did save a dog out of the uh, canal, frozen canal next to the house. Uh, in Hemel Hempstead um, and I thought I, as I had um, aluminium legs I was the lightest so I crawled across the ice and grabbed the little dog and pulled him out and on the way back uh, on the ice it cracked and I went in <laughs> fortunately a policeman oh, was there goodness. by then and dragged me out you're but, a hero but, but that went, sounds oh. but I went rusty and squeaked for ages oh, afterwards no. anyway a little dog got, got out <laughs> but Douglas um, gave me a medal for that bless him um, <laughs> But he he was he was probably my greatest inspiration because um, his his legs he had both hands of course but when he crashed in his Bristol Bulldog aircraft he lost both legs. Okay. Mm-hmm. We have the same doctor, Doctor Vitali at mm. Roehampton, who told me that Douglas's legs were amputated. This was after Douglas had died. He told me that his legs were amputated, precisely the same as my own. Precisely. Really? He laughed. He said, you could have swapped legs. Wow. But I also, um, uh, when he came to visit me in hospital, um, I shared with him an experience that I'd only discussed with my dad. And that was at the scene of the accident. I felt that I'd left my body and I'd hovered above and looked down on my injuries and I knew exactly what my injuries were. Um, and he said to me, and you, you won't see this in any of his autobiographies as such, 
but he said exactly the same thing happened to him when he was sitting in out of body out of body experience of, yes 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 so yeah. i knew when sister beryl ash <clears throat> on the tv program mm. said that she was extremely concerned at explaining to me when i came round in intensive care what had happened to me because the trauma can be fatal and yeah. she said david just took it wow and didn't make any um, uh, any any problem for him at all of course she didn't know that i already knew what my injuries were you see yeah, yeah it's quite Douglas, common isn't Douglas it it's quite all... common having that out of body experience it, it, and that moment it seems of to be. life it seems to be yes uh, it was no life and death was, kind of there was no religious things. experience no, yeah no short life flashing by nothing like that yeah just a, a clear understanding of, of, of what my you, injuries yeah, yeah that you knew that you had to face yeah. now wasn't it that was us going on fascinating definitely You've had an amazing career. So what happens next for you? Um, well, <laughs> uh, I, I've, <laughs> I'm ceasing um, to, to do assessments of disabled drivers in the UK in October this year. <laughs> After doing them for 26 years... <laughs> You've done enough. <laughs> um, I, I need to pass them on to somebody else, and I've got a very capable and competent young lady who races a Porsche. Oh, and she's wow. in a wheelchair... Um, and she's going to take over from me. Amazing. So I, I'm delighted uh, yeah. about that. But I wanted to go uh, one level higher, uh, and I represent the British Motorsport um, Association and the Motorsport Association of the UK, who are a governing body in the UK, on an FIA, that's the World um, uh, Motorsport Governing Body, um, where they've set up a, a, a disability advisory group there. And I'm, okay. I'm a member of that. Um, so no again, stopping you, is that? Well, There's absolutely I'd, no stopping. I'd like to make an impact uh, more internationally. Because okay. I think in the UK, although we can gripe about sometimes the, you know, the lack of accessibility, if you look at other countries, some of them uh, don't mm. have any... Um, That's the thing, isn't uh, it? ...don't have any rules, procedures or whatever else for disabled people. And I'd like to see that changed. Lots um, of changes to happen. Yes, yeah, yes. Still brilliant okay and, it, and as my wife said uh, she doesn't want me at home all the time under her feet so this will keep <laughs> me out of mischief <laughs> definitely so every week i do weekly gripe something that's really really annoyed me this week this week i want to talk about access access is a nightmare i was very lucky enough actually this week to go to parliament which is amazing it was actually about uh, brain injury and sport i don't know how i managed that to go along, along to that one but i did however i went to parliament and then it was just impossible to get up and down the steps i found that it was very difficult to get anywhere obviously i probably could have if I really needed the steps and things like that, I probably could have got someone to have helped me. But I went along with it and I just couldn't... I just thought that disability and things like this and access... How do you feel about access? I mean, obviously, you're dealing with a lot more difficulties than myself. But um, how do you feel about access nowadays? I think there has been an understanding um, of what is required. But implementing it, is a different matter um, particularly in older buildings that's the thing isn't uh, it old modifying buildings. old buildings yeah. um, uh, putting in lifts which are extremely expensive as well 
Mm. Um, but necessary, but, really. Oh, that's yes, the there are. But there, there are there are simple things. If I, if I um, mention football stadiums again, mm. um, if you look at the rake uh, in the stands, they they are quite steep. It doesn't cost very much to put mm. what's called P rails. You know, the shape of a P. And you just bolt them in so you can hold them going up and down. Um, and where you've yeah. got ambulant um, supporters who require that sort of help, often the clubs just don't simply put them in. And, mm. and I'd like to see that. And, and it isn't just football clubs, it's rugby clubs, it's places like uh, Wimbledon, where, where they need to have um, disabled people actually is as part of their organisation, as, as, as consultants, if you like. Mm. Handrails, like I, I simple, need that. Yes. It's so simple, but I can't if I because I don't see very well. Yes. Yes. I need to have that. I know I'm able to do that. It's, sure. it's and it's it should be easy, but yes, it's it not. Is. It is. Uh, again, if I, uh, I'm I'm chairman of what for football clubs enables group. Yeah, and the management there really do understand disability. The majority mm. of them, um, and. They have wherever there is an ambulance seats um, uh, and there are steps. Everywhere we put P rails, mm. uh, and th they cost nothing. Yeah, that's the thing. They cost nothing. You bolt yeah. them into the floor. And, um, and yeah. one of my members recently went to a, a, a Premier League club in very large Premier League club in London, mm -hmm. and had to be helped up and down from his seat. He said the seat was wonderful. He had leg room. But they'd not provided any rails or, or help to, for him to get there and back again. See, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I'd be able to no. deal with that. But the point is here that there is so much money in the Premier League that mm. to put P rails in is a flea bite. Yeah, absolutely. Compared to the you know the revenue they're getting, they need so to start thinking about that a bit more. Thank you so much for coming along to the Longest Battle podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> really pleasure. appreciate it. Every week I do an inspirational quote to help people feel motivated. Um, so this week I'm finishing um, the podcast with a quote from yourself, basically. The quote comes from your website um, and hopefully it will inspire other people. Um, it says, you've got to adapt. So um, is that something that you believe in? Yes, it is. Yes, you do have to adapt. Yeah. I think you also um, need to set yourselves uh, achievable objectives. Yeah. And that's satisfying. And then when you've made achieve one objective, set yourself another one. Yeah, A definitely. bit harder. And Aww. keep going and keep adapting. And thank you so much for coming along. My pleasure. Really Linda. appreciate it. My Thanks pleasure. so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Emma's podcast. She's been through a hell of a lot over the past few years and listening to this makes all of her friends realise just what an inspiration she is. The Silver Lining Charity has helped Emma immeasurably, enabling her to meet lots of other people with brain injuries. The charity is currently raising money for a goodwill silver lining mission to India, just one project that will help those affected by brain injury to get involved in exciting and purposeful activities in the community. Activities that go a long way to invigorate, motivate and rehabilitate. The charity also helps family members and friends who are often overlooked. 
If you've enjoyed listening and would like to donate to the Silver Lining Brain Injury, now's your chance. Visit www.thesilverlining.org.uk. Thank you.